good morning. We come now to the time of our worship for the reading and preaching of God's Word. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, please open your Bibles to Colossians. We're going to take a break from Titus. Turn to Colossians. We're going to focus on chapters, or chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And if you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1,253. And I would highly encourage you to grab a Bible, open it, hold it, look at God's Word as He's given it to us. And the title I've chosen for this morning to focus on is, A New Year Requires a New You. For additional context, I am going to back up, and we're going to begin reading in chapter 2, verse 20. And again, we're going to focus on 3, 1 through 4. So children, if you're listening, I want to encourage you now, scoot up next to your parents or grab your own Bible, open the Word, and follow along as we read the book that God wrote to us. So chapter 2, starting in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world... Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. By way of introduction, there was once a family who was blessed to have four generations living at the same time. And recognizing the inevitable of some of the ages, the family decided together for the holidays. And the youngest member, being the great-grandchild, was excited and volunteered to cook the ham for the family gathering. She had never done so before, so she reached out to her mother to ask for a recipe. And the mother willingly provided the recipe to share with her that this was actually your great-grandmother's recipe. So excitingly, she gathered all the ingredients and she began to prepare the ham. She read the first step of the directions which stated, cut the ham in half and place half of it in the pan. Extremely confused as to why she would need to cut this beautiful ham in half, she called her mother to ask why. Well, her mother simply replied, because that's what the recipe requires. Well, like most children, her mother's answer did not satisfy her. So she called her great-grandmother, or excuse me, her grandmother, to ask why the directions require her to cut the ham in half. And her grandmother responded the same way, because the directions say to. Well, still not satisfied, she decided to call her great-grandmother, who wrote the recipe. She said, great-grandma, why do you cut the ham in half? She said, well... I don't know why your grandma or your mother does, but my pan was too small. Huh? huh? Funny story, but I believe the application can be viewed very widely. You know, how many things do each of us hold to or do 
each of us believe is acceptable simply because we were taught it at a young age. Or more pointedly, how many things do we accept of the world because it is simply accepted by the majority around us? What in our life, what in your life, are you justifying simply because that's the way that you've always done it? Colossians 3, 1-4, to it calls for new life through Christ. And as we work through this passage, we're going to look at five points. We're going to look at who, what, why, how, and the source. So let's jump in. Point number one, looking at who. Who is Paul speaking to? To whom does this passage address? Verse 1 starts off with, If then you have been raised with Christ. But the more accurate translation is, Since then. Since then you have been raised with Christ. It's denoting a reality. It's an accomplished fact. Paul is writing to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ. He's not writing to potential candidates for Christian faith. And Paul repeatedly uses this definitive language. We must realize salvation is not a matter of doubt. We see this back in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, where Paul wrote, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God. This is definitive language. It is settled. It is finished. It is not striving for conversion. It's not working to be born again. It's not working to earn one's salvation. Paul is speaking clearly to Christians And he's reminding them of the reality of who they are in Christ. He's reminding us of who we are in Christ. And without that firm foundation, the reality of dying in Christ and being raised with Christ, no one can move forward to the commands that follow. The commands that follow are built upon the foundation of being a new creation in Christ. As one commentary stated, all theology has practical implications, and all practical implications has theological foundations. And the foundation is that you must be born again. Unfortunately, we see this too too often within the church. Many attempt to jump to the practical application without understanding the theological foundation. And there's a danger with this. The danger of reversing that order, of putting the commands before the condition, puts your eternity at stake. For then you're led to be deceived that you're in right standing with God based upon your actions, but you've not been born again. And this is exactly what Paul was addressing in 20 to 23, which we read. We read about those that submit to regulations, those that turn to human precepts, worldly teachings, and standards, looking to morality as their Savior instead of Christ. Practically speaking, we must not make New Year resolutions that give us the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, for they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. 
We cannot think that because of your own self-control, your own discipline to abstain from certain things, or maybe your newfound discipline to work out that began this morning, is a means for godliness. It is not. Is it good to train our bodies? Absolutely, it is. But physical discipline does not equate to godliness. Likewise, being a better person morally does not lead to godliness. You may feel better about yourself for a time being, but training the body has limited and temporary benefit. Too many continue to live in the sins that they've claimed to die to. Or, on the other hand, they simply replace old sins with new ones, and we quickly justify our behavior by claiming, I'm not as bad as I once was. But believers, we fight for godliness. We do not listen to the lie of being too heavenly-minded is of no earthly good. There is zero scriptural basis for that cliche. And really what that is saying is self-justification of one's lack of focus on Christ and its defiance against the commands of Scripture. The true phrase would be, so many are earthly-minded, they're of no heavenly good. And that can be supported with Scripture. You see, disciples of Christ are not of this world and should not look like the world. John 18, 36, Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present evil age. 1 John 5, 4 to 5, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You see, although we are physically in the world, we are not of the world. Our citizenship does not belong here. Scripture refers to believers as sojourners, exiles, aliens in this world. As John MacArthur said, until we realize that basic truth and live it, we will be ineffective in reaching the world with the truth of the gospel. No one can seek the Lord who is above unless you have been born again. Unless you have died to yourself and been brought to life in Christ by God's grace. Believing that Jesus came in the flesh, truly man, that he lived a sinless life, that being truly God, he willingly substituted his righteousness for your sinful rebellion, and he purchased you by his blood. And because he has granted you faith in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, as the text says, you have therefore died with Christ. And if you have died, you have also been raised with Christ. You can't have one without the other. As Scripture tells us, there's no such thing as a dead tree that brings forth fruit. And likewise, there's no such thing as a live tree that never brings forth fruit. What we see here in this opening statement is 
as Paul, he's putting forth the positive counterpart of chapter 2, verse 20, where he said, since with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, since you have died, then it is also true that you have been raised with Christ. What joy and what confidence in Christ that should bring every believer. Every born-again believer has died with Christ and is now, present tense, now raised with Christ. In Romans chapter 6, 4 through 5, it says, We were buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. There is a stark contrast, and that contrast is between the believer's former state, which was alive to the world and dead to God, and now the new state, the present state, that is now dead to the world, but alive to God. The old has passed, the new has come. You're no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. Well, now that we know who, those that have been born again, those that have been raised with Christ, we can move to the first command. We can move to the what. Point two, what? As stated earlier, all theology has practical implications. And all practical implications has theological foundations. So based upon that theological foundation that you have died and you have been raised with Christ, you're given that first command to seek the things that are above. Seek what is above. This is the practical implication. Believers must focus on matters that are related to the rule of Christ. Since you have died, and been raised with him, his concerns must be your concerns. His desires must be your desires, and his interests must be your interests. Believers, although you live in the world, you cannot let the world occupy your interests, your behavior, and your mind. You cannot continually be consumed with worldly celebrations and indulgences that praise and support defiance against a holy God. He says, seek the things that are above. This is a present tense command to live consistently with the reality of who you are in Christ. We can read it as keep seeking, indicating continual action. It doesn't matter if you prayed a prayer when you were a young child, but what matters is if you are in Christ today, and does your life show it? Are you bearing fruit? The only thing in the past that we should look to is Christ's work on the cross. Continuing on in Romans 6, verses 6 through 7, he goes on to say, We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. 
We, can do, we do continue to live on this earth in our mortal bodies, but we have begun a new way of living. So is the application simply making New Year's resolutions to do better? To be more disciplined? Well, just to make sure we're all on the same page, the answer is no. That is not the application. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Or maybe the way Jesus said it in Matthew 6, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Seek the things that are above. Well, I'm sure I've said that enough, and many of you are now saying, well, what are those things? Tell me, what is it I'm supposed to seek? Are we to seek new things just in the new year? No. But in our daily lives, we are to seek what is above. In verses 5 through 11 of chapter 3, Paul first tells us what must be put off. And it can some, be summed up in the simple words of what is earthly in you. Put off what is earthly in you. We must put to death what is earthly because, as we've already said, believers are not of this world. And then he goes on, and in verse 12 of chapter 3, he tells us what we are to seek in our lives. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, all of which are the chief characteristics of the life of Christ. We are to seek the fruit of the Spirit so that His character, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, will begin to infiltrate our lives and will flow out of you in every circumstance. Those worldly passions will begin to die. And you will begin to reflect the life of heaven on earth in such a small way, but powerful, being the salt and light on the earth. This is what it means to see the world through Christ's eyes, to have a biblical worldview in all circumstances. What is your worldview? What is your perspective in the midst of your circumstances? For every one of us here view the world and our circumstances through a particular lens. For example, there was a man who was stranded on a deserted island. He was hopelessly walking around the island looking for a rescue boat. One day he saw it. He saw a rescue boat, and he jumped with excitement as the boat was continuously coming closer to land, and he exclaimed, I am saved. Well, there was another man who was stranded at sea. He was hopelessly floating for days, praying for land to appear. Then it was, there it was, land. Although he was exhausted, he had newfound life, and he rode with the strength of ten men towards the land. I am saved, he exclaimed. Well, then it happened. The two men met each other where the land and the water met. Their happiness soon turn back to sorrow. What is your perspective? What lens are you viewing the world through? 
Are you like the two men and the rest of the world that views everything through your immediate circumstances, cycling back and forth between sorrow and happiness as one circumstance leads to another, never experiencing the joy and hope of Christ? Or are you born again? Are you a new creature in Christ that sees everything, everything for the glory of God and for growth and godliness? As believers, we are to see the world through the lens of the scriptures as Christ sees the world. A mature Christian will see every conversation, every interaction, every circumstance as one that is divinely orchestrated by God. And then the Christian will respond in a Christ-like manner, never losing joy whether in life or in death. Although there will be tears of sorrow, for we live in a fallen world, and we do experience difficult times, you will still be able to stand and rejoice in the midst of your tears and sorrows as we trust a faithful God. When we see the world through that lens, then you will be able to enjoy the world as God created it and live to the glory of God. And then will you only be able to be effective in your witness for Christ. You cannot continue to have the same attitude of the world, love the same things of the world, and preoccupy your time with things of the world and think that you're a disciple of Christ. The old adage, if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and sounds like a duck, it must be a duck. Well, if you look like the world, walk like the world, and sound like the world, you must be of the world. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It can't be made any clearer than that. The command to seek the things that are above, it demands a profoundly countercultural posture in the world. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Well, we've looked at who, what, now we turn to why. Point number three. Why are we to seek the things that are above? Because this is where Christ is. He is seated at the right hand of God, as the text says. The focus is Christ. Jesus Christ occupies the place of sovereignty, and he should take precedence over everything in your life, second to none. For God will not share his glory with anyone or anything. That's what it means when Scripture says that God is a jealous God. He will not share his glory with anyone or anything because all glory belongs to God. Time and time again throughout Scripture, we're told that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
real quick, Psalm 110, verse 1, Luke 22, 69, in Acts chapter 2 and again in chapter 5. We see it in Romans 8 and Ephesians 1 over and over again. I could keep going, but the point is, is that Scripture is clear that Jesus is in his position of divine authority. And this is why we are to seek him. Because Christ rules at the right hand of God. No one nor anything else is Lord. And that should bring you great hope and joy. Because he rules now. He is the one that is in charge of everything. Satan does not have authority over this earth or over the believers if you're born again but Christ is sitting on his throne at the right hand of God so seek him who is above well that covers the why it's very straightforward and it leaves no ambiguity seek the things that are above because that is where Christ is seated and our focus is always Christ well how do I do that how do I practically seek Christ who is above? Point four, how? We see this in verse two. He clearly says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Think on what is above. We could spend weeks, if not years, studying what the scriptures say about engaging the mind with Christ. But simply put, we're to use the brain that God has given us. Never are we told to empty our minds and follow our emotions or our inner being. That is unbiblical and extremely dangerous. The command to set your mind on things that are above is very similar to the first command to seek what is above. However, here the exhortation, it is heightened by adding the stark contrast of not on things that are on earth. As J.B. Lightfoot said, you must not only seek heaven, you must think heaven. The thoughts of heaven where Christ is seated must fill the believer's mind. We concentrate the mind on the character of Jesus Christ. And those thoughts can only come from the scriptures. The scripture as we have it, it is sufficient for life and godliness. You cannot turn to anything else. If you ever find yourself saying the word is not enough, repent and turn back to the word. It is sufficient. Nature does not bring anyone close to God. Nature does reveal that there is a God and the word tells us that nature is also enough for God to justly condemn, but does not bring anyone closer to God. Each one of us must seek him in his word, for the scripture is where he has chosen to reveal himself. The Bible is the only reliable source where we can turn to to fill our minds with the character of God. No one grows in godliness from passivity. This is why Jesus repeatedly asked, have you not read? Think about it. Think about how many conversations each one of us have had over our life 
we talk to different individuals and they profess, yeah, I believe in God. But if you press just a little bit farther and you say, well, what passage of scripture have you been reading? They begin to fumble with their words. Or they claim that they seek God in their own way. Or give the excuse that they don't like to read. The question that Jesus asked is not, how are you seeking God, or if any of us like to read. The question that Jesus asked is, have you not read? How many of us here don't like to work out, but we made a resolution to begin working out today? Well, why not make a resolution to work out the mind by fixing your eyes on his commandments through the reading and studying of Scripture? Set your mind on what is above, not on things that are on earth. Colossians 3.10, put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Believers, we are called to set our minds on what is above, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What are you filling your mind with? What consumes your thoughts? Parents, what are we allowing to fill the minds of our kids? Are we, as a parent, allowing Disney, YouTube, social media, or maybe it's sports, to transform their minds? As a father, and as a shepherd, it saddens me to how, see how many kids can rattle off sports statistics or Disney princesses, but they don't know the books of the Bible or even how to look up a verse in the Bible. You see, God has ordained the parents to be the primary shepherds of the family, to teach the children, to teach your children the ways of the Lord. So are we as parents, taking that command and responsibility seriously? Or are we giving that responsibility to somebody else? Speaking of being transformed by your mind, look back to Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Colossians 1, 9 and 10. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul continually prayed that the saints would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and increase in the knowledge of who God is. So set your minds on Christ and continue to set your mind on Christ every day. As I said, this is not a one-time occurrence, but it must be done daily. And for many of us, it must be done many times a day. The mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind 
that's set on the Spirit is life and peace. You see, how one thinks shapes how one lives. So what are you allowing to form your thoughts? Is it the world or is it God's word? We, seeking and thinking, it cannot be viewed in isolation of one another. They are intrinsically linked together. What you know will determine what you do. Theology determines doxology. What you know of God will determine your praise of God. So set your mind on Christ, who is above. Growing in knowledge of who he is. Lastly, we turn to the source. Point number five, the source. The source that grants us the ability to be able to turn away from this world and to turn towards the things that are above, the source is Christ alone. Verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The only reason that you can seek and set your mind on the things that are above is because you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. Paul is again reminding us of the theological foundations for the practical implications. Again, it is a settled fact. He says, for you have, and your life is. There's no doubt, no questions, no second guessing. The past and the present are completely covered by Christ. But what a good God we serve, because he doesn't stop there with the past and present. He continues on, and he says that the hidden life in Christ is eternal. And Paul addresses the future state as well. There, that is our hope. That when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. All those that are born again will appear with him in glory. For the work that Christ began in you, he will bring to completion. Christ's work on the cross covers your past, your present, and your future. None of this is based upon what you have done. As a believer, your life is hidden with Christ in God, and your life will appear in glory when Christ appears in glory. Christ alone is the source of new birth. Christ alone is the source of maturity in the faith the source of seeking the things that are above, and the source of how we are to be transformed by our minds. Well, in conclusion, I do want to be clear. This is not a, a do-better message. I'm not that coach who looks at the athlete and says, do better. I've had those coaches. It doesn't help nor am I saying that you must rewrite your New Year's resolutions. You might want to rethink your motivations. I'm not pointing you to philosophical approaches to life that lead to being deceived. What I am doing is I'm urging you, as the text is urging us, is to remember who you are in Christ and to fight for godliness by seeking and focusing upon Jesus Christ. The entire message, it's based upon the centrality of Christ 
It's throughout the whole passage, the, the four verses that we looked at. In verse 1, with Christ, where Christ is. Verse 3, with Christ. And verse 4, when Christ. True saving faith is from God. And he empowers us to live a godly life through Christ alone. Through his death, burial, resurrection. And don't forget his ascension. For he now sits at the right hand of God. For every believer that has died with Christ, you also have been raised with Christ and will appear in glory. So what are you doing to seek? What are you doing to set your mind on Christ who is above? What disciplines have you created in your life? What habits have you chosen to create in your life that help you to grow in full maturity of Christ? Or are you simply following the patterns and the recipes that have been handed down for generations? What are you allowing to occupy your mind and your children's minds? As Jesus said, have you not read? A simple question that we can ask ourselves for reflection is, what identifies who I am? What identifies who I am? Is your job your identity? Is your children your identity? They too will grow up. They will leave and cleave as you, as you have done. And then what? Then what is your identity in? Is homeschooling your identity? Or is Christ your identity? I will never forget a man by the name of Joey Bird. I met Joey in my, my last job before I was called to full-time ministry. And when I was first introduced to Joey, he looked at me and he said, My name's Joey. I am a bondservant for Christ. And I looked at Joey and I said, well, We're going to be good friends. Instantly, it was as if we knew each other for our whole lives. We spent numerous Numerous times together, praying with one another, supporting and encouraging one another, just simply based off of the, our identity in Christ. He knew who he was, and he identified who he was immediately. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Remember, since with Christ you died and with Christ you have been raised, pursue the things of Christ. There was a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones that was shared with many of our men within the church this week. And as I read it, I thought there was no better way to close today's sermon than with this quote. Again, from Martin, Lloyd's, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I quote, Attention! Realize who you are, man. Stand up. Why are you slouching in that manner on this heavenly parade ground? Do you not realize that you are children of the heavenly king? 
Why are you groaning and moaning and apologizing? Do you not know that you are partakers of the divine nature? Why are you whimpering and crying? Why are you talking so much about the world and the flesh and the devil? Do you not know that he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world? Stand up, attention, march, quit yourselves like men. No more of this lethargy, no more of this weakness, no more of this moaning and groaning. Realize what God has done to you. Realize what you are and what he has made of you. And march with your heads erect as those who were once in the flesh, who once belonged to darkness but now are lights in the world. We are marching to Zion. So let us march as men worthy of our commander, worthy of our God, worthy of our heavenly Father. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. End quote. Let us pray.